Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, a reading from the book of, of the prophet of Isaiah, the Lord's commission, his chosen servant. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who dwell in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols." Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. A reading from the Psalms of David, Psalm 29, 1 through 11. Ascribe to the Lord glory, the voice of the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The, glory, the God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. All right. A reading from the book of the continuing acts of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit working in and through the apostles. Acts 10, 34 through 48. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. 
God raised him up on the third day and granted that he became visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who are who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living dead, of the judge of the living and the dead. <laughs> of him, all the prophets bear witness and that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked him to stay on for a few days. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, the baptism of Jesus, Matthew 3, 13 through 4, 1. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What I'm going to do today, if you were here at 930, uh, I kind of found out yesterday, um, just as the wedding was about to start, that I was going to be doing both messages today. Because uh, Anvesh does the scheduling, and he had scheduled Catherine to do her thing at 9.30. But it really got down to with her schedule being as full as it is that she could either go to the wedding or do the teaching today. But she couldn't have done both. So I just told her I would uh, cover the teaching. So I gave at 9.30 what you would have heard at 10.30. So those of you who were here at 9.30 heard the uh, message for today. Those of you who weren't here at 9.30 will have to try to listen to it on a podcast. What I'm going to do today is something that we're working toward is we kind of realized that, you know, of course, I was on sabbatical when we bought this building and moved over here, and so a lot of things got missed, one of which is the book, the book ministry got put in this room up here where hardly anybody even knows it exists, and not a whole lot of people know as much as we need to know about the resources that we have. So something we've spent the last... Um, 17, 18 years, I've probably spent 30 hours a week uh, developing resources for us to grow. And so today, Deanna's going to help me, hopefully a little bit, but we're going to review some of the resources that we have. One of the ideas that we have is every year we have a book of the year 
on, on one or two occasions, we've had two books of the year. There were reasons for it. This year, we actually have three books of the year. So is that the first handout we're going to do? Okay, so uh, Deanna's going to pass this out. Maybe Byron can help her on one side. Just uh, pass out. Um, uh, this wasn't in the bulletin. Okay, this was. I've, I thought we were going to do this as a bulletin insert. But now it is. Now you can stick it in your bulletin and take it home. So the first thing I'm going to do today, I'm going to tell us about a lot of the resources we have. And we're actually going to be doing a little remodeling on the sanctuary, uh, which is going to make Roseanne and Adam have to move because we're going to, not today, uh, but we are going to uh, be stealing the last two pews. And uh, on that side, we're going to put the book ministry in a very nice cabinets and everything like that so that so that you can't miss every week that we have recommended foundational article books. It'll be right there uh, as you enter and leave and so forth. On this side, we're going to take advantage of uh, Stephen Leopold's anointing and uh, have a very nice coffee bar. And uh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who said hot chocolate? All right, we'll, we'll get you hot chocolate. Sugar or no sugar? Sugar, right? Oh, all right. So uh, I used to put a little hot chocolate in my, in my coffee, but then I had to quit, give it up because of the sugar. Um, I, think they, 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 I think some a lot of people do that, right? It's, I think it's called mocha. So, let's, so uh, does everyone have the handout? So I'm going to talk about the three books here. Um, the first book is uh, a book called None Greater, subtitled The Undomesticated Attributes of God by Matthew Barrett. And uh, if, if I could get a younger guy, like, where's John Luke? He's down. Uh, who, uh, where's some of my younger guys? Let, let's just have Caleb, come sit in the front row so you can, uh, or Sam Mawante, you, you can do it. Come sit in the front row, will you? So, because uh, I'm going to have various things for you to pass around. So just so you can look at the book, we're going to pass it around. Make sure that all of these end up at Adam when, at the end of being passed around. Hurry, Sam, because uh, I'm going to toss it to you. You don't want to miss. Um, so, okay. So now, this book was given to me by a friend of mine named Jack uh, Holbrook, who is an elder of a church in Columbus called... So pass that around for everyone. Just take a, just look at it a little bit and pass it on to the next person. Uh, Jack is actually going to come in uh, six weeks or so and speak, and he's going to speak about this book. So um, we're, we are going to be talking about our foundational book list today. So one of the things on the foundational book list is a book called, um, by A.W. Tozier, I should have a copy of the foundation. Can I get a copy of the foundational book list? Is there one up here for me? Because um, I'm going to be going through all of them anyway. Okay, thank you. Okay, so that it's called the knowledge of the holy. Now you might want to. You can write on this. So you might want to note that if you want more detail than the knowledge of the holy, the same author, A.W. Tozier was uh, probably the most famous uh, guy in a denomination called Christian Missionary Alliance. He's long since dead. All the best books are written by old dead guys. Uh, 
And uh, uh, Tozier was kind of was the editor of their uh, denominational magazine for I don't know 40 years or something. Um, he even lived to be an old guy. And then he became an old dead guy. Um, so uh, the, he has a book called The Attributes of God, but it's a two-volume. So there's Attributes of God, Volume 1 and Volume 2, and it covers all the attributes of God that the book called The Knowledge of the Holy covers, only in much more detail. So your choice, what you want to read. The, there's two, uh, so what I'm recommending to you is that if you read our book of the year called... Um, where did I put that again? Uh, none greater, the undomesticated attributes of God, that you first read one of Tozier's books on the attributes of God because uh, Matthew Barrett in None Greater is only covering certain attributes of God, and I'll explain why. So just pay, stay with me and listen, take some notes. If, if, if you can kind of take some notes so you can follow this, this will guide you into much growth over the next couple of years. Okay, so uh, the whole point of, of, uh, of God's intention is God is a personal God who created the universe and eventually he in all the stages of creation and so forth, the last creation was to create husband and wife and he created them naked for sexuality, for marriage and all that and he said it's very good. And God's creation of man was the crown of his creation. And God's intention was to make himself known to man, mankind, human beings, for our benefit. So when you study the attributes of God, there's an attribute called the aseity of God that you'll read about in the book None Greater. Uh, Tozier also covers it, if I remember. Yes. So, but the aseity of God is a very important idea, and it's simply this. God has no needs. I don't know about you, but I do certain things because I need to. Like I make scrambled eggs and toast because I get hungry. <laughs> and it's uh, one thing I know how to cook because <laughs> I have needs, and they include scrambled eggs and toast. So uh, <laughs> um, God has no needs. He doesn't need fellowship from us. He doesn't need our worship. You all know the story of I was listening to a certain pastor, a guy that Nathan actually knows personally. I know him as well. My wife knows him. And a uh, uh, wonderful guy. Uh, perhaps he wasn't thinking straight or perhaps he's not, his strong point is in theology. But he was preaching about worship and he was saying God loves us to worship him and God made us to worship him. And all these wonderful statements about God and our worship. And then as he was on a roll, he's, you know, God loves us to worship him. God enjoys our worship. Then he goes, God needs us to worship him. And I went, ah! <laughs> and I said, Elizabeth, I'm coming home. <laughs> you know, and I died, and I died right there. <laughs> no, I just kidding. Just for a uh, because that's ridiculous. God does not need you to love him. He does not need you to worship him. He does not need you to pray to him. He doesn't need food. If he needed anything, the scripture clearly says he wouldn't tell us. <laughs> God has no needs. 
so, but we need God. And it's very much like when you're a parent, one of the things, if your kids are more than, say, Levi's age, probably your Levi's probably getting old enough and Daniel's probably not quite old enough, to, to know that when you teach them to do chores because you love them, it would be a whole lot easier if you just did it yourself. It's so much harder to teach them how to do the dishes or to make their bed or to do their laundry or whatever. You know, in our family, our kids had to do their own laundry starting in third grade. Mom didn't do that for you anymore because they needed to grow up. And so... Uh, but when you have children, the truth of the matter is uh, a weird phenomenon because of our messed up sinful world is a lot of parents approach their relationship with their kids from a needy point of view. That is really bad idea. The truth is when you have children, it's because that the, the, the love of, of loving God loving each other in marriage, you decide to give. And if you knew how much that was going to cost you, you might not have gone down that road. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> so there's a few moms going, yeah, you're right. Uh, we didn't, we weren't thinking that clearly when we decided to have all these kids. <laughs> no, that's not true. But the truth is, um, you know, God made us for, uh, for our sake. He didn't need us. He just wanted to share his great glory. It's because he's just so full of giving and love that he gave to the point where it really hurts. He died for us. Okay, so, uh, now, I... I can't preach all these points that much, but I would say this. In terms of the foundational books, if you've never read a book about the attributes of God, you probably haven't gone very far in your Christian walk yet. Because the whole point is to, to think about God, to enjoy God, to fellowship God. You've got to know what, uh, a lot about God. You were created for that purpose, and therefore you're taking, you're taking up oxygen on this planet and so forth, but, but if you don't, aren't, aren't pursuing the love and the not knowing of God, you've missed the point of why you're on this planet. God has given a great gift, and he's inviting you to, to, to pursue the love of God and the knowledge of God as a lifelong journey. And one of the biggest, uh, best ways to do that is to uh, study the attributes of God. Now, that being said, um, what Matthew Barrett is doing in the book, None Greater, I probably shouldn't have passed these around until I'm done talking about them. Somebody hold that up wherever it is. Uh, it's all the way back there already. Nobody that interested. I would have read the whole book. <laughs> uh, 
So, um, what Matthew Barrett's thesis is this. Every book has a central idea, right? His idea is that a progressive problem in the last 150 years in the church has been that we've uh, tried to, to more and more and more focus on some of the easiest central points about God. So almost every Christian knows God is love. Hello, loves. And uh, that God is merciful. But in so doing, one of the things that happens is this. Part of our fallen heart is that, and we are in battle with our sin nature our entire Christian walk. If you don't know it, you were born into a war. And you don't have any choice but to fight that war. Okay? You're in a battle. And the stakes are more high than you could ever imagine. And uh, you are of little value to yourself, to your, to your family, to your spouse, to your kids, to, to, to your ministry, to anything else, if you're not growing in the real knowledge of who God really is. And so what the, your sinful nature, and there really is a demonic kingdom, and their goal is to keep you focused on a caricaturized version of God that's tamed down and milded down in a lot less than who he is. A God that takes away uh, most of the biggest kick-butt attributes of God. A God that, that, you're, that you're majoring uh, in a picture of God that's too small for who he is. So I have an old saying that I stole from a guy named Bob Mumford. If you ever find the Lord, he'll be as big as God is. <laughs> like if you find God's purpose for yourself, if you find what God's doing in the earth, it'll be gigantuan. It's not a little deal. You know, we're in a battle for men's souls, and the stakes are huge. And if you've made hardly any progress at all in the Lord, you should be the kind of person who breaks down crying all the time because people are in trouble, people are lost. People are hurting. Most of what goes on in the name of Christianity is very shallow compared to what God intends. And people are downright being robbed. Every person you meet needs your help. But first... You have to know the Lord way more than you ever planned on. And he's much bigger and much more grandiose than you could ever imagine. He's exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you could ask or think.
And your biggest problem is your conception of God is way too inadequate. And it's hurting you badly every day, whether you know it or not. It's destroying you, in fact. It's causing you to meet, miss out on everything. God has more for you than you could ever... It, he has exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever ask for or think of. You know, in Revelation, it talks about how he comes and his reward is with him. You know why? Because his reward is him. And when your heart and mind gets open to the experiencing God as he actually is, it will blow your mind. And you'll become the most radical person you've ever met. You know, because Jesus, think about it, Jesus, what, what the New Testament clearly emphasizes, Hebrews 1, for instance, tells us that God spoke in various ways through the prophets and so forth, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his Son, who is the exact re representation the exact expression of who the Father is. That's why Jesus was able to say, Philip, like, what are you talking about? You, if you know me, you know the Father. And all of life is a huge moral maze where every impulse of your heart, everything you encounter every day, is trying to rob you from knowing how awesome God is and from trying to keep you from being a fanatic in seeking the Lord. Because if you, uh, if you see a glimpse of who God really is, you will sell everything and change every priority all the time to, to see him more. And nothing, no relationship, no am vocational ambition, no amount of money, no goal you ever had, everything will be, you'll be willing to sell to, to know a little bit of it more. Because there's actually nothing else in the whole universe that's worth anything in comparison to the knowing of God. So Matthew Barrett's book, None Greater, is it, it, subtitled something about the undomesticated attributes of God, and he's talking about the big ones. Like, I think his very first chapter, he covers incomprehensibility. And that means you could be a really, really smart guy. There's guys in our church, like Nathan... Uh, Stephen, who are clearly very, very much smarter than me and more insightful than me. You know, the, the reason I wanted Deanna to, to be on staff when I first met her is I realized this person has a lot more education than me about a lot of the very important things, and she'll be able to help me learn about God. And she'll especially be, you know, like in Steak and Shake one night on napkins, she explained to me, what I've always, like, I always wanted to know what a dangling participle was. <laughs> and, 
and 22 napkins later, and I, I, th I think I understood it for a second. And Deanna just goes home and says, oh, Lord, help him. No. <laughs> so, you know, uh, knowing God is, is everything and nothing else is anything. And that's what Matthew Barron, you know, incomprehensibility means the smartest, 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 smartest person can study the attributes of God all their life and you'll never even get beyond scratching the surface. This is a statement you need to understand. If you don't understand this statement, see Bradbury afterwards, he'll explain. No, somebody will. We can know God accurately because he reveals himself in Scripture and in his historical redemptive deeds. But we can never know God exhaustively, which means fully or... or in a comprehensive way because we have little pea brains and his mind is infinite. And so what uh, agnostics wrongly assume from that is they assume because there's always so much more to know about God and we don't even have that many of the little pieces of the puzzle, there's an assumption that, that, that we could encounter knowledge that would overturn all the knowledge we've had up till now, and therefore we don't actually know anything, nor could you possibly ever know anything. That's agnosticism in its purest form, right? You understand that? But what, but the, what God is saying is you can know, even a pea brain like Pastor Greg can know God really, truly, rightly, and accurately because he's revealed himself in Christ and in Scripture that way. And no matter what else I can learn about God, it won't un overturn some points about God which he has revealed to us accurately. And therefore, pursuing the knowledge of God is not a futile pursuit. It's a actually accurate, wonderful, uh, yielding very good fruit pursuit all the time. And I can grow in the knowledge of God every day in real and accurate ways. And I can grow primarily in two categories of ways. One is scripturally or intellectually, I can know about God better and better by knowing, reading books like Matthew Barrett's None Greater. But because of the great gift called the Holy Spirit, I can know, also know God accurately in my experience. And there's nothing more valuable in the whole universe than experiencing the presence of God as we sang about today. That was the most happening place to be in the universe. And if you had to sell your house and sell your car 
And, you know, if it was a video game, if you had to kill a few, a few giants or whatever to get there to, to enjoy the presence of God, it was worth the fight to get there. Mostly you just had to fight your lazy body to get awake and, you know, and all that. And maybe drink some coffee, speak in tongues, wake yourself up, whatever. But, you know, both the 9.30 and the 10.30 meetings were worth fighting to be at. Partly because the Lord revealed himself. Because he's promised where two or three are gathered in my name, he's going to show up. He's going to manifest his presence. And that's the most valuable thing in the world, in the universe is the manifest presence of God. So, that's point number one of 737 points today. (laughs) Now, the next book for this year, and I am going to go over it today, and you can shoot me if you want. I don't care. Um, is a book called Our English Bible in the Making. Let me suggest to you that it's hard to get a copy of this book because we bought as many as we can find on the internet and we're working on that this week. Let's work some more on that this week, make sure Noel is taking over this. By the way, if you stand up for a second, Noel. If you don't know Noel Venegas, you, you need to know Noel because she is taking over our book ministry. And if you're looking for a book, she's going to get very good at finding books that are hard to find. One of the things I do, Noel, with a book like this is I always call the publisher, and then whoever I'm talking to, if they are at all negative, I ask to see to, if I could talk to their supervisor. And then I ask to talk to their supervisor, and I ask to talk to their supervisor. And eventually you get up high enough that you get a person that goes, okay, we'll do that. Like the, if they search their warehouse... I was told there was no way we could ever find any more copies of a book called Receiving the Promise of the Father by Garnet E. Pike. And as I talked to a supervisor, 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 eventually I got someone who said, I'll search our warehouse and see, but we don't publish that book anymore. And they came back and said, I just found three cases of the book. I said, I'll take them. And that, was, and, we, and that was like 20 years ago, and we still have some of those three cases, I think. Still, we haven't had to reorder that book since then. So uh, this book was written in 1952. That was a great year. Remember that, Nathan? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, and uh, it is about the history of the, the Old Testament text and the New Testament text and and uh, it, it'll introduce you to the whole idea of documents, and you'll know words like, we don't have any autographs. Now, that's not like, Byron, can I have your autograph? That is, we don't have the original copy of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, right? But we have copies that are so close to the original date as to be sure that they're accurate copies, and we have hundreds of them, in various traditions that go various geographical directions. And there's a whole thing called textual criticism where they are able to uh, put together. We have like fragments of the Gospel of Mark that date from like 64 AD within like a, a year or so of when Mark wrote it. 
We don't have the whole gospel of Mark that old. But uh, if uh, you, you'll hear people tell you, because the, in a, in one of the phenomena of modern people, modern people are, are kind of brainwashed in certain ideas, whether they know it or not, doesn't mean they're not. And the, one of the ideas is they know various things that they can have strong opinions on even though they've never studied it. <laughs> and they actually don't know anything about it. That's a very common thing. So people assume, well, the Bible is copied so many times and we don't have accurate copies and so forth. That, all that's nonsense. You know, when you're in high school, you used to have to read a, a book called The Iliad and another book called The Odyssey. And they were written in the 8th century by B.C. by a guy named Homer, who sometimes nicknamed the Blind Bard because he wrote a bard as a songwriter and their, their verse and song, and he was blind. And uh, uh, the, the most recent copy that we have of the Iliad and the Odyssey comes from the 8th century A.D., 1,600 years after the original. Yet nobody ever says, well, how do I know when I'm reading the Iliad and the Odyssey that it's accurate? With the Bible, we actually have copies that were copied, and copies of copies that were copied, that come from within years of the originals. And we have so many tens of thousands of them that we have uh, more than 100 times more reason to believe that the, the scriptures we have are accurate than any other ancient book, period. So, you know, if you're going to read Plato or whatever, there's not even one one-hundredth of a chance that it's accurate to what Plato actually wrote in comparison to the, the surety that you have that your New Testament gospel of Luke is accurate. There are, there are no other books from antiquity that we have so much uh, available knowledge of the original documents and, and so forth to be sure that what we're reading is accurate. The Bible, we have more than, more than a thousand times better, more percentage of accuracy because of all the documentation and the whole thing, uh, uh, science of what's called textual criticism, and comparing manuscripts and, and figuring out the history of how this copy got made from this copy and, and all that stuff. You might know uh, who Hort and Westcott are or whatever. But this will teach you all that all through 1952. Now, you go, well, wait a minute. All the best English translations uh, are made after 1952, which is true. The New King James, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, all the best English translations we are, that, are, that exist are made after that. Of course, uh, we, so one of the things that you should then, after you read this book, I would encourage you to take about 30 different common, like go, go to a, a resource like BibleGateway.com and open up all the English translations and, and uh, read 20 or 30 of the introductions to the Revised Standard Version or the Disciples' Literal New Testament and read the principles by which it was translated. And once you start having a feel for that, 
you, when you're comparing translations, you'll go, oh, that's from the Revised Standard Version. This book was written to defend why you, uh, churches were changing to the Revised Standard Version in what was known as Pew Bibles. So from, from, the, uh, from the time of the Reformation on, churches have had a concept called Pew Bibles. And the Pew Bible is the recommended translation that they use in the pews at church so that when we're reading from the scriptures, everyone's reading the same translation. That's why in our church, we have the English Standard Version in the Pew Bibles because we read a book by a guy named Kevin D. Young. He's quoted uh, that, that movie that we showed about the history of the scriptures. What was that movie called? The God Who Speaks. Remember that one at Wright State? He's quoted quite a bit in that movie. Kevin DeYoung is, is a super cool, intellectually good, great pastor guy. And he wrote a book called Why Our Church Changed to the English Standard Version as the Pew Bible, and something like that. And I read it. John Weiss read it, and lots of people read it. And so um, once you've read like how the New King James was made, you'll understand what's called literal equivalence versus dynamic equivalence versus paraphrase. And once you know, you don't have to study a whole lot to know those things, really not a lot. You'd have to read this book and the introduction to seven or ten good translations of the Bible. In the beginning, every Bible has like a, a section about the principles of translation that were used. And once you begin to understand that, for instance, uh, that there's three major kinds of translations. There's what's called literal equivalence. Those are always made by committees. And the committees are debating the text, which yields a lot of accuracy. You get a lot of Greek scholars fighting about whether to put the, you know, this uh, I know or I know, <laughs> whatever, you know. And... Uh, so what they do is they have each book, like Mark or whatever, has an editor of that book, and then there's a committee of 30 people who are using all the ancient manuscripts of Mark and so forth, and they're debating how to translate each passage. And in the literal equivalence, they're trying to have an exact English word for every uh, Greek word. So I know it's getting late. Hang in there with me. I'll end this, and we'll probably pick this up next week. I might just do this at 9.30 for a few weeks till you get this. Uh, but th I want you to know the resources we have. So once you, uh, dynamic equivalence, you're translating an idea for an idea, whereas literal equivalence, you're trying to have an English word for each Greek word. Because their principles of sentence structure and syntax and so forth are different, if you were to read John 3.16 literally, it would read something like, world, God for, loved, only begotten son, gave so much, or something like that, you know, like, but so what they do is they polish up the English, and that becomes a debate. Many people do not like the New American Standard Bible, which is the most literal of the literal equivalence Bibles, because the, the reading is choppy. And therefore, almost no churches use the New American Standard for their pew Bibles, 
because it's not that good for public reading. However, almost anyone who's serious about studying the Bible, the New American Standard is their, is their translation of, of preference. We rec- highly recommend starting with the English Standard Version because it's both literal equivalence and easy-to-read English. So what they did when they made the New International Version, which became the most popular Bible ever, it's the greatest selling book of all time by far, even more than the King James. And it has influenced American Christianity greatly. But it's a what's called a dynamic equivalence translation, so it's idea for idea, and they, it's, it's it, uh, you know, Bible scholars like our friend Andy Gearhart, for instance, almost anybody who's serious about the Bible hates the New International Version. But uh, evangelical churches love it because the reading is easy. But what the English Standard Version did was it kept it as easy, but they corrected the bad translation and made an accurate literal equivalence translation. One of the things they did with the New International Version, whenever there was a choice to be made between uh, uh, something that was kind of radical versus something that was more culturally acceptable, they watered it down to the more culturally acceptable phrase uh, so that it wouldn't offend anybody. But if you turn Jesus, what we've done in America today is we've turned Jesus into someone who doesn't piss anybody off but Jesus did piss people off, especially religious people who went to church. So much so that they had meetings in where they figured out, like, how can we get away with killing this guy? Now, as far as I know, I know a lot of people get upset by me and so forth. I've known that for years. And I try to be nice and all that. But the truth is, if you're not making anybody angry... You, there, there's, you're the one with the problem. Because Christianity doesn't fit in with our flesh very well. That's why I sometimes use this phrase, phrases that aren't that acceptable in church. Because the truth of the matter is the Greek New Testament does that. So when the New International Version takes Philippians 3, where Paul says, I count them and all things as rubbish, which the New American Standard also waters that one down, they're watering down the Greek word that it's, uh, you can't say in church. <laughs> because you'd all be mad at me if I told you what it really means. So that's why there's t-shirts that says, say, if you don't know Greek, you don't know scublon. <laughs> But what, what, uh, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to upset you when you, he wants you mad. And if you're reading Philippians 3 and you didn't get mad, you didn't understand what he's writing about. Because he's, he's trying to come against that whole idea of everything God has said we will do. You know, he's trying, he's trying to say every form of self-reliance and self-righteousness and every leg you might stand on to have some status for before God is diarrhea. And it's so sick before God that you should have trouble not upchucking when you think about it. 
Like, I don't know about you, but I raised kids, you know, and I could handle changing diapers and all that. But, like, when it came to vomiting, like, I just couldn't handle vomit. <laughs> like, if the kids start vomiting, I started vomiting. <laughs> it was like, I can't stand it. Like, it's, and what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to say all the things that people think of in terms of religion should make you vomit. It's really sick. Whenever I try to think about it, I, I think about going to a Cleveland Browns football game and what it was like trying to go to the restroom in one of those places. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> if, if, I, if I really could paint the picture of it, I would ruin the fellowship dinner afterwards completely. No one would be able to eat for the next few hours. And, you know, so uh, anyhow... So that's our English Bible. One more, one more thing, then we'll pick this up another time. The third book is called Spiritual Authority. Spiritual authority is the most radical idea in the Christian faith because we are constitutionally rebels. We think that we have a little sin problem, very little, All we like sheep have gone astray. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> Each of us has turned to doing our own thing. And so spiritual authority is actually the most controversial issue in the Christian world. Because we want a God that we can do what we want. We, um, the, the, the very strong message of evangelical Christianity almost stronger than any other point made in, in evangelical Christianity is you come to God and you decide how much you want. That's what the whole seeker-sensitive big church thing is about. We have programs. If you want to get more serious, we got something for that. But we're certainly not going to insist on it. You can define what it means to be a Christian and how far you want to go. That's the most important message in American Christianity today. It really is. And you can choose just how serious you want to get. It's up to you. And the sad thing is, it sort of is, and there's great consequences for that. Because someone who goes all the way with the Lord, there's great rewards for that. And there's great cost for not. Someone who goes all out for the Lord, there's great rewards for that. And someone who doesn't, And that's why Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives looking at Mount Zion across the Kidron Ravine in Matthew 23, 37. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And if you can't feel the power of that, like he's weeping because those who were, were 
who were called, those who were granted salvation, those who were the chosen people, wanted, their, wanted to decide how far they went with God over and over and over again. And God was fed up with it. And he was saying, no more. I'm done. And there will be tremendous consequences. If you haven't read the book Paradise Restored, read the hundred or so pages at the end that are excerpts from Josephus' account of the destruction of Jerusalem. Because as far as I know, what went on in Vicksburg when Sherman uh, made his march to Atlanta and so forth, the siege of Vicksburg is the only other place in human history I know of where people suffered so much from a military surrounding of a city in the conquest as Jesus told them would be. That there would, you know, from the days of Noah and so forth, no other uh, people ever suffered as much as what the Jews did when Jerusalem was surrounded by armies. And people were down to, you know, drinking their own urine, eating their own feces because they were so starved and deciding whose son are we going to eat today? It was the most horrific suffering of any people, of any place, at any time in the history of man. And believe me, I know a little something about history. And Jesus was weeping because it was never intended to be. And that's why like spiritual authority is the issue of the universe. We want a Christianity where neither the Bible, the Holy Spirit, or the church tells us what to do. We want a Christianity that we redefine who God is and how much of him he wants, and we want to focus on issues like whether they got the liturgy right or some other minor issue, and we especially don't like people who are going to be used of the Lord to challenge us very much. And we have all kinds of ways of listening to the accuser of the brethren to say, let's shut that guy up. So there are consequences to all of that. And there is no reward like the reward for not watering down any of it, for going all out for all of it, and for calling the church up to a higher place. That's why they, the people of God always kills the prophets that are sent to them. Because you've, we've got to find some way to shut Jesus up. And if he's speaking through someone else, we've got to make sure we find a way to shut that person up. And there are always consequences. 